0: Recorded live.
1: Scuba Obsess is the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. scuba obsessed episode 243 it's recorded live june 18th 2015 welcome back to scuba obsessed i'm darren jilson coming to you from the west side of the great state of michigan and joining me this week in the perfect diving weather we have mac the dive mentor how you doing today mac
2: I'm doing very well, thank you.
1: And we also have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim?
2: Feeling like a frog.
1: Okay, I, I'll bite. What? What's, how's a frog feel?
2: Forgetful, retired, old, and grumpy.
1: Ah, I, I'm like that quite often. And this week we have a very special set of guests. Uh, I, I actually did the interview with them last week, and uh, the the book comes out this week. And we're going to play the interview, but we had... and Let me get my notes... Hold up to the front because if i don't have my notes i will slaughter this you might still slaughter it even i got slaughtered anyway i mean there's there's no doubt doubt about it but if you've heard of the book shadow divers you're aware of the author robert curson and he's come out with a new book which is called pirate hunters so i had the opportunity to interview robert curson and one of the subjects of the book was john matera john matera and john chatterton were the subjects of the book. They are the pirate hunters looking for a shipwreck. Let's go ahead and jump into the interview and you can follow along. Robert, can you give us a little bit of background about the book?
0: Yeah, the the book is called Pirate Hunters and uh, it's a true story of two scuba divers search for one of the rarest things a person could find underwater or really in all the world, which is a golden age, genuine pirate ship. Uh, and so it, it follows the very, very uh, exciting adventure of John Chatterton and John Matera as they first decide to become treasure hunters, but then uh, at the last minute kind of swerve um, and change their plans and go after this rarest of all prizes, a a Golden Age pirate ship.
1: Tonight you happen to have uh, John Matera with you. How are you doing today, John?
0: Uh, Fine, thank you, sir. How are you doing?
1: Good. Now, I understand, Robert, you had worked with uh, John Chatterton on uh, another book,
0: Right. John Chatterton was one of the subjects of my first book, Shadow Divers, which was another true story. Uh, That one was about um, a World War II German U-boat that Chatterton discovered sunk in New Jersey waters in 1991. And it was about his uh, quest, really his obsession over the course of six years to not only identify the U-boat, which no Navy, government expert or historian had any idea about, but to explain who was inside and what it was doing in New Jersey and how it had met its end. It was a very, very exciting story and one that I felt very lucky to find. Never did I dream in my wildest imagination that I'd have another great true story to tell with John Chatterton aboard, but indeed, he did something just as thrilling uh, several years later.
1: So what is that, which is, I take it as a premise for the book?
0: Right. That's that he and John Matera, who we have with us tonight, um, decided a few years ago that rather than coast to an easy, soft landing in life, uh, that they were going to go do something very hard. They're both uh, deep water uh, shipwreck divers and uh, determined that there were uh, lost Spanish galleons in the Dominican Republic that still hadn't been found, many of which could contain millions and millions of dollars worth of treasure. And they kind of pledged um, their lives and their fortunes to each other to go out and find one of these Spanish galleons, or maybe more than one, but at the very last second, they kind of had an opportunity, uh, based on some historical information, um, that there could be a pirate ship to be found on the north coast of the Dominican Republic. And that, to uh, especially to a history lover like John Matera, was simply too good a chance to pass up, even if there were galleons out there. The galleons could wait for a moment. A pirate ship, uh, as John Matera has said to me several times before, is forever and uh and that's what they decide to do they decide to go out and look for a real pirate ship the rarest thing you could find in the world
1: now john yep what got you interested in this sort of endeavor of, of looking for a treasure or pirate ships
0: well, I've, I've been
3: i've been a, a shipwreck uh junkie since i was about 15 years old you know uh diving all along the northeast corridor and new york new jersey shipwreck so i was always enthralled by shipwrecks and uh but nine years ago, I was diving in the Dominican Republic and I, I stumbled across a very, very old anchor. And uh, that kind of got me thinking about, you know, Spanish shipwrecks in, in the Dominican Republic. And I started doing a bunch of research and I found out there were quite a few, you know, literally hundreds of wrecks in that area and quite a few, you know, really, really rich ships that had never, ever, ever been found. And uh, originally, we we... we John Chatterton and I got together. We we're going to put together a company. We we're going to go out and look for uh, Spanish shipwrecks, and and there were a plethora of, of Spanish wrecks. Most of the wrecks in that region were Spanish, so it was kind of a, a no-brainer. And uh, a shipwreck of that day, colonial shipwreck, you know, every ship carried. It was a microcosm of time. Every ship carried carried uh, valuable cargo and and wonderful intrinsic artifacts on it. So we started finding stuff here and there. But then uh, an opportunity came to uh, uh, search for a pirate ship. And uh, truly, you know, a pirate ship is, is, is a thing of legend. Uh, you know, there's only been one, one pirate ship that's been discovered uh, and verified. And uh, the chance of, of, of getting the second one in history
1: was just kind of overwhelming and, and uh, consumed us. Now, was that a hard decision?
3: Uh, um, financially, it was because uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're putting up a bunch of money and you're going after shipwrecks that you know carry a uh, cargo of of a monetary nature that you can convert into into making money, and to give it up and to go after a ship just for the historical sense and still spending the money and still putting the time in and still putting the the hardship and the aggravation and. Yeah, it, it was it was a, uh, a difficult decision and it wasn't one that we came by lightly, but it was one that when uh, when we decided to, we went after with with uh, with every every ounce of, of effort that we had.
1: Now, what point in the process did you involve uh, Robert and let him know what was going on? You know, uh, we, we had spoken to Robert
3: you know i i known robert for quite a few years and john's been real good friends with him for a a, a long time and uh um we've become very close friends through the the, the process of, of writing this book and uh it was it was after the discovery of the ship and 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 the full magnitude of what we had done uh it it, it was it was kind of a surreal moment when we found the ship and realized what we actually found, and and there was only four or five guys there, and we were just like, oh, that's a that's really good, and and uh, after a little bit of time, you know, a couple of days went by or a week went by too, you start to realize that the magnitude of what we really found, and how best to tell the story, you know, wow, well, you can make a press release, so you could do this, so you could do that, but the 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 collective decision between John and I was. You know, let's talk to Robert and see what he has to say, because really nobody tells a story like he does. And uh, we called him up, or JC called him up, and we sat down and went out and had some dinner and uh, told him the story. And uh, and uh, he was just overboard involved from like minute two. He was just uh, really truly like he lost all composure and fell
0: in love with the <laughs> idea.
1: Now, Robert, did you have to put any other projects on hold to go and write the book?
0: Yeah, I was working on a, another project that seemed very promising. But, you know, when you hear about guys who kind of risked everything to go find a real pirate ship, it speaks to the little kid in you. You know, I, it's it's hard for you to imagine that there's many people out there who uh, haven't been intrigued by pirates uh, at some point in their lives. And the chance to go uh, tell this story, uh, because there was so much at risk, really, for these for these divers – uh, to do this, uh, just seemed like a once-in-a-lifetime chance for me. Uh, there's no way uh, I could have passed th- that chance up any more than they could have passed up the chance to go fight the pirate ship itself. So uh, it was, you know, to me, it, it, it's it's really like John said. It took me about two minutes to to decide, and uh, and we were off to the races at that point.
1: So how long did it take you to research and write a book and get it ready for publication?
0: Well, it to- this in this case. It took me about two and a half years. And I I thought it would go faster than that in in just about the same way that uh, Chatterton and Matera thought they would be able to find this pirate ship a lot faster than they did. You know, that part of what intrigued me about their story was they thought this should be an easy task. Uh, I think they were thinking it might take them a month or two and then they would have it wrapped up and go on to their treasure business. It ended up taking them a lot longer than that. And it was more complicated. I went into this story – Pretty uh, innocently thinking, well, this will take me a few months. And, uh, you know, the story's right there to discover. But I, I had no idea of the depths involved in this story about how interesting the pirate captain was who had helmed this ship, uh, what this pirate had done. He had de- uh, defeated the Royal Navy in battle, and not just one Royal Navy ship, but two warships. Um, that the history was so rich that this man had been one of the w- most wanted men in the Caribbean and that he had been an, an English a gentleman before that. He was a a noble ship captain who stole his own ship and turned pirate. All these details uh, weren't apparent to me up front, but the more I found out, the more uh, helpless I was to resist the story and the more I had to dive into the whole thing myself. It just was one of the greatest stories I'd ever heard.
1: Now, you mentioned the uh, pirate ship captain. What do you think it was that turned him from a respectable sailor into a pirate?
0: Well, this is the million-dollar question because uh, Joseph Bannister, the captain of a ship called the Golden Fleece, really in the year 1684 had a lot to live for and so much to lose by turning pirate. He really could have uh, just continued to do what he was doing, retired um, with uh, a good deal of money, and sat in a house by the sea with his dog uh, enjoying the rest of his life if you turned pirate in the late 1600s, you were going to hang if you were caught. And they were being caught in uh, greater numbers than ever before. This was uh, a serious risk for anybody, but a pirate captain to do this, and especially one to steal his own ship, he was going to hang if he was caught. And the idea of what would have made a guy do that was absolutely fascinating to me. And it wasn't a, a question that you could answer right up front. It really took a guy like John Matera, who put his heart and soul into this and who thinks um, historically. He thinks um, backwards in time, and it's a fascinating process to watch. It wasn't until I really started to talk to John and listen to him think about Joseph Bannister that I I had a clearer picture for this guy. But according to history, there's no real explanation for it. He was um, taking a massive risk, and he wasn't a poor uh, seaman who had nothing better to do or had no prospects. This was a guy who really should not have done this. But he, not only did he do it; he became incredibly effective.
1: So, John, how important was it in understanding that side of the captain in finding the ship?
3: Oh, a- actually, extremely important. When, when we first started looking at the shipwreck, uh, you know, we we knew that it was in the Bay of Samana, and we used to find shipwrecks in the ocean, so we figured, ah, it's in the bay. How hard can that be? Well, <laughs> it was it was a pretty it was a pretty big bay, but uh, that's what ended up taking us so long. And you really had to delve into the mind of the captain, or, or what kind of man he was, to really understand where the ship was. It, it, it was uh, it was one of those classic examples of everybody's looking in the wrong place for 300 years or 200 years, so therefore it must be there. Well, you know, when you start to understand who the guy was and and how effective he was, and what a great captain he was, and how smart he was, you realize that. He can't be in all those places because it, it it would just be contrary to his his skill level or contrary to his intelligence uh, you know uh, so he couldn't be there so we had to really kind of you know chip away uh, locations one after the other after the other after the other until we actually found uh, found a likely spot and and found it in in, in treasure hunting or, or shipwreck hunting uh, X never marks the spot it just marks the spot you just searched And there was nothing there.
1: So so how much of your time was spent searching versus how much is spent researching in the library?
3: Well, that's why uh, JC, John Chatterton, and I make a pretty effective team. Uh, You know, I I take care of most of the research, and he runs most of the operations. We overlap each other quite a bit, but um, I could be off doing research, and he's on the water searching using magnetometers or size scan sonars or the tools of our trade. And I'm trying to whittle away, uh, the little pieces of information. Truth be told, the more time you spend doing research, the less time you're supposed to spend on the water. However, we started this project with a, uh, misinformation or, or a lack of information or less information than we should have. So that drove us back to the research room. So it was kind of a, uh, they rent the, the both operations kind of ran parallel. We're in, in a perfect world. Do all the research prior to going on the water and doing our search.
1: On the water, you had specific tools uh, that you used. You mentioned the magnetometer. Uh, uh-huh. What can you tell us about that? Uh, you know, we have we have a lot yeah. of listeners who who actually hunt for shipwreck.
3: Sure, cool. We we uh, the, the the two favorite tools of a shipwreck hunter or, or a shipwreck searcher are uh, a magnetometer and a side scan sonar. Side scan sonar paints an acoustic image of of the seabed, uh, but due to the shallow depth of colonial era shipwrecks, the reef structure where we, we search, a side scan sonar it gives so many false readings. It's a, a really not an effective tool for us. like it would be on the you know uh, in in deeper water. So our magnetometer it, it'll measure the polarity of the Earth's surface, and when we pass over a, a ferrous metal object. We would get uh, dipolar and polar hits that would indicate that we uh, just pass over a, a metal target. And then we would come back and we would cr- do cross-section runs over that area and cr- try and build a pattern. Uh, and then w- when we have an area that we know is a shipwreck or that we believe is a shipwreck, then we'll come back and we'll do a micro-survey. We'll bring maybe 35 dots uh on each pass and uh, we'll go up and down the line. And, I'm sorry, 35 feet on each pass and we'll go up and down the line and paint the micro survey, and really try and 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 uh, ascertain what we have at that point. Then we'll bring in the side scan sonar, and we'll paint the picture over over that image, and then we'll use satellite surveys, and uh, and then we have custom software that we designed, and then we'll we'll layer that software one over the other over the other. So you'll have you'll have your a chart, and then you'll have a satellite survey, and, and then you'll have a uh, a side scan image, and then you'll have your magnetometer hits right over the top. So you'll be able to see actual pictures at the bottom where the hits are.
1: So you said you had to have your own custom software written.
3: Well, we we, we purchased software, and we kind of started uh, uh, building on that, and and ripping it down, tearing it up, and then we ended up uh, uh, pretty much designing our own stuff.
1: Excellent. Yeah, every, everybody's got to have a few of their own. Unique tricks to the trade.
3: Yeah, well, that's that's really not my uh, my bellywag. Uh, that would be Howard. I uh, I have trouble with the on-off switch on
1: my computer. He's <laughs> he's a true uh, techno geek. Robert, you had to interview quite a few people for the book who had some of the the better background information. Well,
0: um, in addition to John Chatterton and John Matera, I interviewed their two crewmen, Howard Ehrenberg, who John uh, just made reference to, who was really. Uh, a master of the technology and the computer systems and the software. Uh, and then uh, Heiko Kretschmer, who is a East German native um, who had a, a fascinating story of his own about leaving a communist country and coming to the Dominican Republic. Um, and he was a real Jack of all trades. The, the four of them made an, uh, a really unusual and, and unbelievably effective team. Um, I also uh, talked to, a legendary treasure hunter named Tr- Tracy Bowden, who um, had explored and salvaged three Spanish galleons and had been the subject of two different National Geographic profiles. He was really interesting and of a different era, really. And, uh, and then um, there were locals, uh, including um, a former Dominican uh, Navy admiral who happened to be John Matera's father-in-law, who figured into the story as well. So there's a lot of great flavor, local flavor, um, and uh, to do this, you know, I traveled to the Dominican Republic a few times and and went into the, you know, up to the north coast there, and it was a completely different world you enter. Even uh, from the capital city of Santo Domingo to go north to Samana, uh, where this all happened, is like uh, going into another universe in many ways. So it was it was a thrilling adventure for me, even though I came along after the. The search had been just wrapped up. I, I think Rob's being a little modest there. We actually had
3: him up on land. He was finding his own cannonballs <laughs> right on Pirate Island and everything, and he was getting right into it. So uh, I, 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 he didn't really come in after the search was wrapped up. It was just after the discovery was made.
1: Yeah. Now we, we, you you mentioned finding the cannonballs uh, with with a metal detector. How many bottle caps did you have to find before you find a cannonball?
3: Well, You know, not not many bottle caps, but a lot of a lot of uh, older construction materials like nails, and and nails of like, you know, 250 years in duration. You'd find the common 10-penny nail next to a, uh, a wedged, hand-forged nails, uh, uh, things like that. We'd find some, some unidentified scrap metal. We found it, picked up a knife, and, you know, we really couldn't determine what year it was from. But the minute you find a cannonball wedged into the side of the cliff, you, you really kind of understand what you have here. You know, it, it didn't fall by accident. You know, and all right, if you drop one or two, you know, when you start picking them up by the, the 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 dozens, you really start to realize that this was a gunfight. This was this was where this was where the action was.
1: Now, as you're searching for the Golden Fleece, were there any other unexpected finds that you came across, or there other wrecks where you're like, well, oh, if yeah. I wasn't looking for this one, I'd stop right here.
3: Oh yeah, we we have. Uh, I, I I keep telling people that my grandkids could be salvaging shipwrecks that we found and and, uh, and still never run out of work to do. <laughs> we found a plethora of shipwrecks. There's an area right outside of Salmon, uh, uh, about eight miles out. It's called Boca Peduto Shoals, Lost Ship Shoals, and if you do the translation, and every time you come across a reef, we find another shipwreck. And period ships, cannons and anchors strewn all, all over the place, and and. Uh, you know, but we just kept coming back to that pirate ship. That's that's what we were searching for. So we just marked them on a list of to do racks that we would get back to. You know, and uh, did some exploratory dives and uh, went back for our, back to our search.
1: So it, from a duration standpoint, how long was it from when you started the search to when you finally felt like you you had the ship?
3: Uh,
0: you know what? I'm terrible with with because uh, uh, I lived it. Rob, what do you got? Just, just yeah. about just about a year. Um, from start to finish. But one of the things that was so interesting was that uh, history believed it knew pretty much exactly where the wreck or where the ship wrecked and where it went down. So to to Chatterton and Matera, this was going to be a pretty routine kind of exploration. And the area they had to cover was not that big. It was thought to be at a certain island in the Dominican Republic on the north shore there, on the north coast at Samana, that had Previously been featured in Bacardi rum ads as a kind of paradise on earth, Um, and so it was easy enough to figure out that uh, three of the four coasts would not have made an appropriate place for Bannister's pirate ship. So really, they had to to search one shore. So what could be easier than that? So this really was looking like a matter of a few weeks. Um, the The problem came up when they realized that if this pirate was as good as Um, history suggested he was, he could not have made a mistake like going to that particular shore, no matter what 325 years of history said. But once Chatterton and Matera realized that history might be wrong in this case, then the entire bay opened up to them and that was a massive area to search. So it became a magnitude's longer uh, duration than they had expected. I think uh, it was miraculous that they did it in the course of a year. Uh, If you if you look on a map, this seems like so much longer. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a huge bay to search once you once you don't have the the pinpoint anymore. But they they uh, relied on their own historical research, and really on getting into the mind of this pirate captain, into the mind of Bannister, uh, to to come up with insights that were really pretty breathtaking. And once they once they got into Bannister's mind, and, and, and in a way became Bannister. That's when they had breakthroughs and that led them to a completely different place. The, the, about the, the, one of the secrets to actually finding the wreck was that we, we
3: knew that the, the, the ship was on the Korean, that he, he beached the ship. So we knew we were looking for a sandy beach. We knew we were looking for water of a, of a significant depth that they could ride the ship up to a sandy beach. You know, a gradual incline was out of the question you know so we did have clues going forward you know when we actually did find the shipwreck you know if if i sit back and i read the book today I go man i was dumb you know no, it took me all that time to find that ship you know i mean it's so obvious it's like pointing. to oh there there it is you know but it it took a while when we were looking
1: now you mentioned that the the ship was on a sandy beach can you explain what the what the pirate ship was doing
3: sure uh, the, what they did was they in the in the caribbean waters you know everything grows on, on, on a ship. That's why we have coral reefs that are treacherous. So every every month and a half or two months, they would have to scrape down the ship, uh, get rid of all the barnacles and all the all the sea growth that was growing on the ship because that would slow the ship down drastically. They would also have to recork it, you know, uh, make repairs and uh, you know fix the lead sheathing, you know, around the waterline. So they would, in high tide, they would drive the ship up onto the beach and then they would set up their pulleys and chain for, and, and deadfalls, and at low tide when the water came out, the ship would be out of the water. So they'd pull the boat up as best they could during a high tide. And then when low tide came, they'd start to work on the ship, and they would scrape it and and uh, and, and repair the hull. And as they repaired one side, then when the high tide came in, they would turn, flip the boat, kind of like tilt the boat over to the other side again, and then they would do the other side. So they were on the careen and uh, when they were set upon by the HMS Falcon and the HMS Drake, so you would think that they were sitting targets, and you know most pirates would have just thrown up their hands and said, "We give up," like like so many pirates in history did. But uh, Jack Bannister, he had other ideas.
1: I'm looking in the book right now, and there's say a drawing, and this is by uh, an eyewitness, John Taylor, in June 1686. How did you come by that drawing, Rob? What
0: going to get? Well, uh, yeah, I mean the this drawing is see part of um. One of the challenge finding the pirate ship was only one of the challenges. That's rare enough, um, and there are reasons why pirate ships are so very, very rare and so very, almost impossible to discover. But even if you get lucky enough to come across one, um proving which pirate ship it is is virtually impossible. As John said, only one had ever been discovered and verified up to this point, and that was the WIDA in 1984. So uh, this is – um, almost an impossible task to to identify this thing, even if you do get lucky enough to find it. But there happened to be an eyewitness to the battle between the pirates and the two navy warships. It was just a, a, a matter of luck that a professional observer and a writer was on board one of the the navy ships as the battle unfolded over two days, uh, and he wrote a firsthand account of the battle, which is just a gift to history and lucky. But the, another thing he did was draw um, a diagram of the battle and the terrain and uh, and mountainous regions behind it so that once this drawing that was done in 1686 came to light, that proved the, the uh, identity of the wreck conclusively. The fact is that nobody probably had seen this drawing or read this account for hundreds of years. But a really brilliant um, researcher and historian named David Boussere, uh had just finished writing a book, just as the divers had finished diving this wreck. he had just finished a book called Jamaica in 1687. Um, as you can tell, a very specialized kind of book in which he not only reproduced Taylor's account of the battle, but he reproduced the diagram that Taylor had drawn. And that drawing came to the attention of Chatterton and Matera and Tracy Bowden, uh, the older treasure hunter, right at the time that this discovery was made of the pirate ship. So all the planets really were aligned uh, for this to have
1: not only happened, but for the
0: proof to be so clear.
1: That has to be amazing, just for the everything to come together like that. Yeah, it was really – it
0: was inc- incredibly unlikely. And, you know, you could uh, – had it not been for the Taylor account of the battle in the drawing – I think everybody would have believed they found the golden fleece and made a very good case that they'd found it. But in just the way that I had written about in Shadow Divers, that being pretty sure or almost sure was never going to be enough, that was never going to be enough here because people could always doubt that you'd done it. And there would always be a certain measure of doubt in the divers' own minds, too, that they'd done it. And that's not the way these guys who are really built to go chase history and to – do difficult things. That's not how they want to walk around and live the rest of their lives. Um, pretty certain is pretty equivalent to to being dead to these guys. They want to know for sure, and so to come up with the kind of proof like this is really very uh, special circumstance. It, it was it was icing on the cake. We we had uh, we had so
3: much in a way valuable clues. You know, right after, about three months after the Golden Fleece went down, William Phipps, who was the first discoverer of the Concepcion, happened upon the, the wreck of the Golden Fleece. And he identified the depths. He said he had found cannons with E-Broadhead arrow, the, the sign of the British um, British Navy stamped upon them. You know, we knew roughly where the ship was. We knew it was on...
0: You know, so we I think I'm losing John.
1: Yeah, I... Just seems to be a little bit of internet congestion. We'll give it a second and try again. Yeah, it's a fun part of the internet. Yeah, <laughs> I can hear you perfectly. Well, can I answer some more questions for you? Sure, sure. Did uh, I? Oh,
0: you I there, lose John? You Guys,
1: for a little bit. Yeah.
0: Well, I was going off on a on a whole
3: tangent. I wasn't <laughs> even there. <huh? laughs> I could have been talking to my wife.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you you were mentioning uh, uh, the cannons. I think it was about when we lost you.
0: If I if I started, uh, there was so many clues. Uh, yeah, I think we lost them again.
1: <laughs> it must be UNESCO. I, th- I think that's that's what's happening. The
3: artifacts, all well, period artifacts that came off of it. Uh, uh, nothing was post 1687. We found cannonballs with the aborted arrow on it. So we really knew we had, had the wreck, and in the uh, and the with the uh, tail tail drawing were really icing on the cake for them. I
0: didn't lose you again, did I? I think you might. Yeah,
1: I'm here now. Yeah, I, I it, it broke up a little bit, but I think we got we got most of it. Okay. Now, how, how much, okay. there, there was a mention at, throughout the book that UNESCO had been pushing to change some of the regulations surrounding uh, shipwrecks internationally, and I believe that there's a treaty that they're working on. How, how much did that play into timing? Could that have derailed the finding of the shipwreck?
3: Well, you know what? Right now there's a moratorium on, on, on uh, salvage in the Dominican Republic while they're ascertaining which way they're looking to go. They were leaning towards UNESCO. Now it looks like they're leaning against UNESCO. Uh, um, and the fact that we found the shipwreck before it, all this uh, transpired was very, very strong. You know, I, I, if 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 it took us another six months or another eight months, who knows? We might not have ever been able to find it.
1: Yeah, because there's, there's a quote uh, in the book, and it says uh, – uh, Chatterton and Matera feared that these days were coming when politicians and armchair wannabes elbowed in and stole treasure from real guys who worked the waters every day.
3: You know, the truth about shipwrecks about, about ch- or artifacts underwater salt water is not a keen environment to be storing items in. You know, they degrade. They disappear. You know, everything's going to disappear once it's in saltwater environment. It just, it just erodes. It's, it's a fact of, a fact of nature. It just disappears. And these people who want to keep things in situ for who? I really don't know. I mean, uh, you know, you're much better off bringing up what you can, preserving what you can and let people see it in a, in a a place where they could see it. You know, I mean, I'm all for, you know, preserving shipwrecks in there if they're in a freshwater, uh, a location, and, and they're going to be there for a couple hundred years. They're going to be fine. Salt water is not an,
1: an environment conducive to preserving shipwrecks. It's just not, it's just not there. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to find anything. What kind of condi- – is there is there much of the shipwreck now? Are, are you doing dive charters out there?
3: No, actually, we're not. We just covered it up, over again after we were done. Uh, the, the the mud inside, they preserved it real nice for a couple hundred years, and we're hoping and it keeps it that way for a while longer. Uh, finding the hull of the Golden Fleet after we we excavated down on the most amazing days of my life. You know, actually seeing the hull of the ship almost intact. It was really truly amazing. Salmon Bay, for some reason, has they have it has a lot of little freshwater tributaries and uh, it has this really thick caked on mud, and you really find uh, uh, organic materials that. Uh, like wood and uh, leather soles or shoes that come out of out of the the ocean, like you, you wouldn't believe. So that's uh, really a wonderful thing. So after we finished our excavation, we covered the shipwreck over again with the uh, with the mud that surrounded it, and uh, you know, in case uh, we want to do any kind of study here or anything with it in the future.
1: Robert, when is the book going to be released? It's coming out
0: Tuesday, June 16th. That will have marked about three and a half years since I first discovered the story. So when a book comes out, it's, it's amazing. It just takes a very, very long time. And then all of a sudden, one day it's there. So that's coming up very soon.
1: Uh, how would people get it? What's the best way for them to get a copy of the book?
0: Oh, it'd be in every bookstore. You could go to Amazon, uh, barnesandnoble.com, uh, and and your favorite independent bookstore online or in person. It should be everywhere. You should have no trouble finding it.
1: So it's in print. So it's going to, it's going to be initially released in hardcover.
0: Yeah. Initially released in hardcover. It's called Pirate Hunters. It's a, it's a quick read too. It's not a gigantic book. It's a real nice Father's Day beach read. Um, it makes, you know, it's a very, uh, it goes down very easily.
1: After reading the book, I have to definitely agree. I I enjoyed it. Very fortunate that uh, uh, John Chatterton and John Matea that you both were able to find the wreck. And it's a good book. I I recommend it. And I know that the dive club, there'll be a lot of people buying copies as soon as they can.
0: Oh, fantastic! That's always
3: good news to hear. Yeah, thank you very much. We 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 count ourselves as very fortunate to be involved in it, and uh, and to tell the story is really a cool thing.
1: So now that you've got this, what's next? Do you have another discovery in another book coming?
3: That's a well, question for Rob and a question for me. You first, <laughs>
1: Rob. Well, I'm always. Well, he
0: might, be, he might be waiting for our next discovery. Yeah. <laughs> every time I see John Matera or John Chatterton show up on my caller ID, there's always a, a possibility that something incredible has happened. That's what. That's part of why I love spending time with these guys because they not they aren't uh living lives that are uh predictable and uh where they're running out the clock and that's always uh, of primary interest to me.
3: We we have a a couple of wrecks we're looking for in the uh in the Dominican public working on uh uh some licensing issues and we're looking for another pirate ship off Haiti. We're planning to look for another pirate ship off Haiti. And then we have a pirate raider that we're thinking about well off the uh, coast in Georgia
1: that we're uh, is on is on our short sights. So we'll see. Now, do you ever get in fresh water? Do you ever get in the great lakes here?
3: you know i, I did as uh, growing up uh and and I liked it, but the older I get there the uh the more I like the warm water.
1: <laughs> oh, you're one of those
3: <laughs> well you know i have like if you go into my garage, I have like four dry suits hanging up on the- shelves that up on the list and I put one on though uh
1: oh <laughs> yeah you, you you don't do a whole lot of diving without a dry suit around here.
3: No, I put one on the, the, the sleeve, the, the, the wrist seals would probably pop right off on me. It's been so long. <laughs> but I, I love, I love the Great Lakes with all my heart. I, I truly, truly do. You, to go, to drop on a, on a, on a, I'm a wooden wreck guy. You know, I mean, I grew mm-hmm. up with you know, diving a lot of steel hull stuff, but around my, around my house, there was a plethora of wooden shipwrecks and, uh, and no one loved them more than me. But to drop in the Great Lakes and to see one, I mean, it's just—it's surreal. It really is truly amazing. And I just love it.
1: Yeah, when when you, when you get a good vis day, there's not a whole lot uh, like it.
3: Nothing like it. The, no. the Great Lakes. to I me, mean, they're humbling. They truly are humbling.
1: Yeah, the people from outside the Great Lakes, and they come. I think that the name "lake" throws them off because it, it's yeah. really freshwater oceans.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's it's got really. They should change the name. It has nothing in common with a lake.
1: Now, Robert, I know our listeners are going to want to know this question, and, it, and it's an important one. But do you scuba dive? <laughs>
0: no. Um, when I, I, I should tell you, I I don't even swim. Uh, oh. I was one of those. I was one of those guys where they they thought uh, at a young age the best way to teach you to sim- swim was to just throw you in a pool. But it didn't work for me. And if I had any uh, illusions about becoming a scuba diver, those were uh, quickly put to rest when I. Um, found John Chatterton and he told me the story of shadow divers because oh. <laughs> uh, the, the U boat they were exploring was 230 feet deep, 60 miles off the New Jersey coast, and it was an incredibly dangerous wreck uh, for all kinds of reasons. And people died exploring that wreck in the effort to solve the mystery of, of the U boat. So um, I, I gave up any, any ideas about becoming a scuba diver or a shipwreck diver pretty quickly after knowing these guys.
3: <laughs> we we got, we got him a cool set of floaties when we take him on the
1: boat with us. <laughs> <laughs> a little, some wings?
3: Yeah, yeah, you got to put them on his arm. They're nice. They're big ones. Yeah, they, <laughs> they're they're orange. So we could spot them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I, I certainly appreciate both of you coming on the program. Look forward to seeing your book climb to – you think you're going to make number one this time? or?
0: Oh, yeah. He's going there. He's
3: going all the way.
0: <laughs> Excellent. We're gonna, yeah, we're going to try. Thank you so much for having us. Well, hey, thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it.
1: And once again, I'd like to thank John Matea and Robert Curson for coming on the program. It was a great interview. We recorded that last Thursday before the show, so about an hour before the show, they came on. We quick did the recording, and then we went and recorded our regular episode for that night. Uh, he's on tour this week. Otherwise, he'd have tried to be on with us live and in person, but we appreciate that. Uh, so what do you think, Mac and Jim?
4: I'd like to go find me a shipwreck, too. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, I can't wait to get my
1: hands on the book. Yeah, it was, it's a good book and it's written very similar in style to how Shadow Divers was. Uh, cause if you, if you're, if you're not a deep, detailed person, you're probably not going to be that much into the book because I mean, that's what, that's what makes the book good is that he, you've got the basic plot, which is finding the shipwreck and then they go and, tell some of the backstory and how they're getting the information and how they're finding the wreck and the discussions they have and all the good and bad that goes with, with wreck hunting.
2: Well, you know, that, that's something I really believe I would enjoy because as they said, you know, in the, in the interview, X doesn't mark the spot. X only marks the spot that you searched and know it's not at. You know, Mac and I comment all the time when we're out on the water. Well, every day we've been out searching and don't come up with anything. We know that's the area where the wrecks are not.
1: Yeah, well, and and in the book, they they kind of lead you along in the beginning, and you're wondering how can this book be this long when obviously they're going to find the wreck here in in the next you know two or three days. And uh, everything that we've had experience with is is what they ran into, which is it's not where you want the information. People have uh, maybe bad or inaccurate or uh, misinterpreted. That was a big part of it is the amazing amount of the information was correct. It just wasn't quite at the angle they had. And then at the end, uh, like John Matteo had said, you kind of look at it you're like, ah, why didn't I find that in a month? Cause once you've got all the background information together and then you've got all the, the details. And then it was fortunate. I don't know if you could pick it up from the interview, but there was another author who published a book just about the same time they're finding the wreck, which had a, a very accurate photo or not photo, but like drawing from somebody who was a professional observer and writer who observed the battle and saw the ship go down. I mean, that's like a dream. If you had that right in the beginning, that could have easily knocked some time off that search. Or worse yet is it could have been somebody else found it and not uh, chattered the Matea. Well, uh, the other thing I picked up on, I don't know if, if you got it from the interview, was they, see, they seem to enjoy the magnetometers for searching better than the side scan.
4: Well, they're looking for mass well, got cannon on board, that's a lot easier to, to get a hit from a further distance, even if it's been under the sand, than with a side scan that you're looking for structure.
1: They had a technique that they have developed, and it sounds like they've got a couple of uh, crew members who they talk a little bit more in the book, who have some nice technical skills, and they were creating their own method for overlaying data. So you would overlay magnetometer data, and then they would overlay uh, side scan Data and then GPS data, and they would bring all these pictures together, and they'd give them ideas on what to hit. And as they're going through the book and they're describing every little tiny thing they hit, and at one point they're like, oh, "You know, we can't seem to find it anywhere." But it's a it's it's a good read. So if you enjoy Shadow Divers, it's worth picking up. We'll have a link on the website to Robert Curson's website where you can. Uh, get it, and then if you're an Amazon member, you know you're going to be able to get that in the Amazon bookstore. I'm sure it's going to be in all your big box retailers. They'll have books. Your local bookstores. Chat room, have any questions before we get on to scuba the news? How many people are in the chat room tonight? Ah, uh, we have looks like about six right now, but we've had another seven or eight who have been in and out. I'd like to thank everybody who did come into the chat room. Uh, we had Vanessa the Mermaid. We have Dave Surfer George. Flyboy, and then uh, many anonymous guests who have who have gone in. A Plymouth dive center in the U.K. fails trading standards test, and I'm I'm thrown off a little bit by the U.K. Terminology, but the Plymouth Dive Centre has been getting visits from the Trading Standards office. So it must be there, like their weights and measures or FDA uh, tests are being carried carried out on air quality used by divers in the city. Plymouth is one of the most popular locations for scuba diving in the UK. Compressed air supplies to divers must meet standards for quality and lack of pollutants. Trading Standards officers tested the air provided by several dive shops and clubs in the city. Of the seven samples taken and sent away for analysis, six met the requirements of Control of Substances Hazardous to Health Regulations 2002, COSHH. The sample that didn't pass failed by a very small margin, and as soon as it was identified, work on the compressor took place when the samples retested and met the requirements. The most common reason for compressors failing to meet the regulations for contaminants is excess carbon dioxide. Increased concentrations of CO2 lead initially to increased and uncontrollable breathing rate, but can also lead to unconsciousness and death. Much more dangerous is excess carbon dioxide, but luckily this is very rarely experienced, and diving air has never been recorded in air supply by any Plymouth diving shops. Counselor Phillips Dave, Philippa Davey, cabinet member for a stronger and safer community said the area around Plymouth is a great place to dive and we're pleased these results would show local and visitor divers can rely on the air supplied by Plymouth business to be safe. Our trading standards officers regularly check divers air to ensure these standards are maintained. Trading standards office carries out these tests randomly throughout the air and please that all shops we visit are very happy to work with us. Yeah, you know, they said it was by a very small amount. Uh, what, what, As somebody who runs a compressor, Jim, what would cause the CO2 to be a little high? Is that a compressor maintenance issue? Or to me, it would seem like it'd be where the air is being brought in from.
2: Uh, Yeah, I think that's more air intake because I don't believe there's anything in the filtration system that would actually take out CO2. I mean, there's activated charcoal, there's desiccants. What's that, Mac? You know, there there might...
4: I I was going to say, Jim pretty much right but there is a standard the the item that requires that is a uh, code of federal regulations and if you look them up it'll right. be uh title 46 19 or 197 450 under breathing gas and for commercial guy diving you're supposed to have it checked every six months or if you repair or modify your your compressor and it gives the standard for what it has to contain like oxygen 20 to 22%, carbon monoxide 10 parts per mi- per million, carbon dioxide is 1000 parts per million. Then you of course have your condensed hydrocarbons, you know, you don't want that's why you don't use uh you use like vegetable oil, not petroleum type products for your hydrocarbons. But what I thought was interesting is that paddy requires CGA grade air, grade E air for dive shops, but they leave the testing and the frequency to the shop and/or local governing authorities, and the only authority I could find that actually does that by state is Florida.
1: So Florida reg- regulates, and now do they just regulate or they test it?
4: I, I well, I mean, you got to test to regulate. If you get the state stamp, you know, like okay. your gasoline, mm-hmm. and then they, they you get a stamp to make sure your the machine is metering your gas correctly.
1: Yeah. Well, they they could outsource it. They could have uh, required that you send a sample from your compressor to uh, an independent lab who then sends the results back.
4: Yeah. Again, I don't know how Florida does it, but uh, I think generally out there where we're at, the important item, of course, is where do you take your intake from? And like Jim was saying, is making sure you get the water out of it all the time, which Jim is always doing, and then have good filters and change them at a good frequency.
1: Yeah. We also have Dave in the chat room, so Dave might have something. Okay, here he says, uh, high CO2 is caused by the conversion of the CO in the filter uh hopsolite usually is what he's saying usually. So it could be uh filter getting towards end of life, which filter life on a compressor uh is is a combination of use and temperature and humidity. So there's factors so you can go through filters in certain times of the years much quicker than others. And that's one thing to be aware of if you're doing your own fills and you have your own compressor is you take on that obligation of making sure it's maintained and you should for peace of mind uh have it sent out for sampling.
4: You always like to see that sticker saying they've been checked.
1: Yeah. Fortunately, we don't see it too often. The following the show, every once in a while, we, we had that incident down there in Mexico, I think in, within the last year. Uh, and I think before that, it had been a while since I had seen a, a a known case of where people had had bad air.
4: Fortunately, I believe it's rare. Jim, have you heard very much of people getting bad air? No. I know that, like Larry and Ken, Larry changes his filters out religiously. I mean, he maintains a log of hours and oil changes and filters, which is, I think,
1: admirable. Well, here down in Orlando, Florida, it might not be a good idea to keep your scuba gear in your car at the airport. About $27,000 worth of scuba diving equipment was stolen from a car parked outside an Orlando hotel Thursday night or Friday morning, police say. According to Orlando police, the car was parked at the Orlando Airport Marriott overnight. When the victims went out to the vehicle Friday morning, the window was smashed and valuable items sto- stolen, including Megalodon rebreather system, two shearwater computers, and other scuba gear. Police have not identified any suspects at this point.
4: That would ruin your day.
1: Yeah, because you figure, yeah, you know, first when they said twenty-seven thousand, I'm thinking, what do you have a whole shop? But if you lost a rebreather and two shearwaters, you're pretty much you're pretty close to that.
4: Well, I looked up prices for Megalodon. And depending on what you get and, and what all the bells and whistles, that alone is nine to 10 grand.
1: Yeah. 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 Because, you know, we usually say you, you want to budget at least 10 to 15 for a rebreather. Yeah. And then in the Shearwaters, those are a little bit as well. So what's this? In, you're sending me in Skype.
4: That's for later. That's for later when you get down to uh, Toba Glory.
1: Okay. okay. We'll get to that one in a little bit. We have, if you've been following it, I haven't covered it every time this comes up, but there's talk about Dorothy's Red slipper, and this is out of Wisconsin. The Dorothy's red slippers were stolen from a museum, and rumor has it—I'd say uh, Wisconsin—it's Minnesota—they were stolen ten years ago while on loan to the Julie Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, the hometown of the Oz star herself. Scuba diving team has failed to find them at the bottom of a Minnesota mine pit. Long-standing rumors have said the slippers were thrown by thieves or a thief in nearby Togun mine pit. The Itasca County Dive Team searched the waterhole for the ruby slippers last week, an event coinciding with the annual Wizard of Oz Festival, which is hosted by the museum. They said something that was of interest was found, apparently a small duffel bag and a partially de- deteriorated can and a rifle, all of which were turned over to the Grand Rapids Police. The newspaper said, despite the disappointment, the Garland Museum volunteer Rob Farn- uh, Fennie told the paper just the beginning, we're never going to stop doing this until I found, and we know what happened. And supposedly what happened is that the thieves put the shoes in a waterproof container and threw them into the quarry. And it's all rumor, of course, because you know, how, how would you find out? How would you know? And then I'm thinking what a thieves' version of waterproof is might not be what actually, I mean, a, a Tupperware container uh, 100 feet deep isn't going to do it.
4: Well, looking at the picture, Looks oh, like a big body of water
1: yeah that is that is a large quarry I'd say yeah, a little bit Actually,
4: bigger. I looked it up it's 51 acres yeah max depth 225 feet water clarity averaging 40 43 feet yeah
1: so a good dive spot I bet it's a fun place to go scuba diving a good excuse to get in the water but as you as as we've anybody who's looked for anything that's in the water where somebody has told you where they know where it's at isn't easy to find. Yeah,
4: They didn't tell me what the bottom was like, but if it's a quarry, normally I would think it'd be more hard packed.
1: I'm picturing. what I, when, when I see that photo, it reminds me of uh, France Park in Indiana, which is really, uh, you know, large aggregate.
4: I would imagine that being it's deeper, because according to this, it has very steep walls. I think you're going to be at such a depth, you don't have a lot of time to be looking around either.
1: And then we have... U.S. Sea Cadets Treasure the Great Lakes Division. And this is a nice article, and we'll have it in the show notes, which will be up on the website. Uh, and the, the Sea Cadets, it's uh, the U.S. Navy Sea Cadet Corps, has been around since 1962. It was first established as a youth development program. Its purpose was to de- develop a maritime interest in America's youth. This is according to Clyburn, who grew up enjoying the rivers of Indiana but headed to Michigan to be bound to Great Lakes and attending Central Michigan University. While well, working at the bank to help pay for his tuition, Clyburn met Jim Clarkston, who was president of the bank, where he worked and a former member of the military, involved in the area sea cadet program. In one meeting, Clyburn was hooked and had been actively involved ever since. Nationally, there are about 10,000 sea cadets who are allowed to join when they're 11 and continue the program until they graduate high school. There are CB schools, music schools, leadership school, as well as international exchange programs, which are land-based. The Great Lakes Division, however, is one of the few programs to feature training on the water thanks to the resourcefulness of Clarkston. He is the one who acquired the program's first vessel, an old Navy ship earmarked for the scrapyard. Clarkston and his program volunteers had a ship refurbished and served as a training vessel until 1989 when the program of directors acquired the ship that is being used now. There are vessels used for training Annapolis to teach seamanship, navigation engineering history. The Pride of Michigan was the one was a working ship used by the Navy Clearwater mines. Unlike modern ships made of steel, an attraction of the magnetic mines, the Pride of Michigan was made of wood and able to freely move among the mines. Alan has just been amazed by what he's been able to do so far, said Sue Vanderbrick of Portage. Alan is a member of the Fort Custer Windward Sea Cadet Program, was among the sea cadets who took part in the Great Lakes Division's basic open water scuba certification on Lake St. Clair this past week. He just thinks the world of program. Luke is very personable. He's He's military and still very approachable with the boys. They come from all over. This is one guy from Hawaii that's crazy, Texas, Nebraska, California. It's like the training is right on the ship. I love Saint Clair and I love the ship," said uh, Cadet Calvin Shenzhen, fourteen of Hawaii. It's like a family. Due to the cost of operating the vessel, in the program, fueled only by volunteers, Clyburn said, their limited number of days they're able to be underway still. To work with seventy-five or more students each year over the course of completing their scuba certification, Alan Vanderbrink, Colin Shahane were able to practice their skills with good divers. Learn to port to scuba safety, body water, free of sharks and other distractions, as we like to advertise. So a nice program. Did you see that boat, Mac? Oh yeah, that would be nice. Now this is not this. I don't. Is this the Woodhall one or is this the other one? The private I'm Michigan. not
4: sure. You had talked about this a uh, couple of years ago when they were involved in doing some exploration. Yeah. Shipwreck. Remember?
1: Yep. Yeah. Really nice program. Yeah, and we've we've covered them a few times before. And working, It's just an amazing opportunity to be able to actually train on a vessel. Did you skip? Amelia, by the way. How can we skip Amelia? But yes, I did. Let me jump, (laughs) go back to that. And and that's how I know it's summertime, is when they start talking about Amelia Earhart. The same group, and this has to be about the third year going where they have been looking, and it might even be longer than that, where this particular group is concerned. Uh, The search party called the Earhart Project, led by the International Group of Historic Aircraft Recovery, known as TIGHAR, or TIGER. Is the second week of searching for clues surrounding a mysterious disappearance of legendary aviator Amelia Earhart. The Earhart Project is testing the hypothesis that Earhart and navigator Fred Newlin, the Noonan made emergency landing eventually died on Gardner Island. Also called Nikumaroro, an uninhabited island republic of Kirkabiti and the Western Pacific Ocean. The current search expedition is named Nicomorororo was that v is that those i's or l's you have to have a vowel search number eight. Oh, okay <laughs> so so the correct term is eight not vi uh the eighth trip in the search of of Hart hart newland the first expedition the niki one set sail in 18, 18 <laughs> 1989 and uh, they go on and give some background history talking about disappearing in july 2nd 1937 Um, let's see, they go on, so this year's search is using a 120-foot research motorboat that left June 8th from Fiji. It's on a 24-day expedition, 14-person team is using small remotely operated uh, vehicle or ROV to scour the ocean floor, scuba gear for shallow underwater searches, and metal detectors to search for man-made items among the natural bottom the rov can descend more than a thousand feet is equipped with powerful lights thrusters high definition real-time video among other features the rov team reported getting the camera up on june 14th cruise five scuba divers saw many fish but also reported seeing unhealthy and sometimes dead corals a depth about 80 feet deep waters reaching about 140 feet the reef looked healthy with lots of pieces of airplane wreckage to hang up on oh lots of places they plan to keep searching for in the, for future days. So I bet we'll see a few more items on that.
4: This is not the same group that we talked about last year when they said they had discovered a piece of aluminum that looked like the same type. Oh, I thought and it was that Tiger,
1: <laughs> that TIGR team.
4: I don't know if it was the same, but they didn't mention anything about that. And that's what they were doing is testing the material. Remember they were going to go get that?
1: Yeah. Because they had a
4: photo of the aircraft that looked like that could have been a patch that was on that aircraft, mm-hmm. but I've never heard anything from that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. But they've been going out every year to do it, which makes for a great summer trip. Heck, where else better to get in the water?
4: Uh, Lake Michigan? Spend that money with the
1: side scan for us? <laughs> yes, if you want to go search for stuff, we'll, we'll let you get in the boat with us. Oh, crud, I, I think it's my right article. I'm starting to think of magnetometer. Would a magnetometer work for what we're trying to do? Nope. Yes. No.
4: Well, yes. yes and no, because you got a boiler and a prop. You can certainly find the 2501 with it.
2: That's the primary object Ralph was using. He spent more time watching his magnetometer than he did the side scan.
4: And for those who don't know, that's Ralph Wilbanks from NUMA, working with Clyde Kessler. And Jim, you've been out with him.
2: Yeah. Yes, I have.
1: <clears throat> well, we need to find something that, get, that spikes his curiosity so he comes back. Now, how, now, how's this for a problem to have? Out in Owen Sound, the harbor it says a repository for a lot of derelict ships and that's a message from Scarlet Johannes president of Tobamori based Scarlet Johannes archaeology and i'm and i'm slaughtering the last name so it's probably not it She was hired by the city to investigate three shipwrecks that were discovered earlier this spring during ongoing upgrades of the wastewater treatment plant along the harbor's east side. The original wreck was an 1800s two-masted schooner-turned-barge that had been scuttled at the end of its useful life, has been positively identified as Dan Procher. Two other sunken vessels were also located during the side scan, and based on their condition... Uh, she's saying that it's difficult to c- confirm their identity. She says they're both likely schooners from the 1870s. Now that the initial investigation is complete, uh, she's passing along recommendations to the Owen Sound City Council. I'm saying she. Is that a scarlet? It, that, that could be uh, the male or female name. Uh, Included in recommendation package goes before the council on June 15th. They say that if dredging occurs in the Owens Sound Lower Harbor, perhaps the detailed side scan would be warranted to possibly identify other shipwrecks. She believes upwards of 20 scuttled, derelict, or even sunken vessels may be resting on the harbor's muddy floor. Officials have expressed interest in side scanning, saying we've put them through their ear.
4: For those who don't know where that is, I sent you that link that Uh gives a really nice map of its location in Georgian Bay, around Georgian Bay, because it is in Canada. And the club hasn't been there in many, many, many years because that's a long drive.
1: Yeah, Tobomori, I know. I've, in fact, uh, one of the guys I'm in the Boy Scout troop with, uh, that's where he did diving, was over there. Well,
4: you really want to go there at least once, just in that, that area alone, and, and you do have to get a permit and all that to dive there. It's a little more restricted than we have in in, in our area. But there's 26 mapped out wrecks. And I think, uh, if you went to that one location I sent you, there's also a picture of the Bay Area and, and where the wrecks are located. Yeah. But you'll find them anywhere from 20 feet down to deep. And there is a lot of, of shallow ones and deep ones. And they're such, so, so located that if you have bad weather in one section, you'll have good weather in another section that even if you go up there, you're going to be able to dive something decent.
1: Is this Okay, I guess it will take a little bit longer than Sheboygan because you've got to go over to Canada and then up.
4: Yep, And their speed limit is different, and I don't think that's interstate.
1: Well, what do you mean? I can go 100 no. miles an hour over there. <laughs> 100 kilometers an hour? Kilometers, miles. There's a difference? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I look at that, and that's, a, that's, that's where Lake Huron leaks into Canada from the map. Yeah, I've heard good things about about that. That might be a, a spot I need to go. So for now, you need to have uh, proper papers to be able to get in and out of Canada. So you've either got to have one of those travel cards or a passport. So for lazy people like me who don't have that stuff prepared until I got to go, uh, I might not be able to get in. Of course, they might not even let me in. Who knows? They may have been warned.
4: Well, if you can't find a wreck up there you like, you're in sad shape. And again, a, a predominant number of them are really, really... Way, are almost everything's in the sport diving limit.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: With I'd better say over half, if not more than half, 60 feet or so. Now,
1: how's this next video? Uh, a free dive prank on a scuba diver. Well, yeah. I must
4: confess I didn't look
1: that up yet. Well, it's a nice little quick video. Uh, we'll have it on the the website. Show follow along. We're we're going to start doing that. It might not be up tomorrow. That one might be one. I'll have to wait for the weekend. But what it shows is that you have some divers. Going along doing their thing, and then a free diver comes up, and you know how you were pulling my fin—that's what he was doing. And that diver looks around and has no clue as to what just happened.
4: As long as I like those sharks off the coast last week, biting their arms off.
1: Yeah, <laughs> in the water. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be feel pretty lucky that uh, it wasn't a shark.
4: Yeah, that's why freshwater is really really nice.
1: And then another video we have of the week is somebody testing. 3d printed parts underwater what they do is, they, is they a is a print a little toy submarine when i say submarine it's not a pressure hull. it's just the submarine shaped thing that a little lego man can ride in and he also makes an underwater housing for the camera and he, he drops it into this uh, 200 meter deep body of water and they go down the video shows the the depth as they go and everything ends up The kind of a spoiler alert uh, it survived but I've always kind of wondered with a 3D printed part, uh, and I'm sure not all printers work the same and all materials work the same, but they got some pretty good depth out of it. And then the final video of the week is we have an underwater obstacle course. And this what I thought was something that we should do and to describe the course. And again, we'll have the, the video on the website is they had taken a pool and it's it's quite a deep pool. And anybody who's in their archaeology course must complete this training and they've taken and suspended objects in the pool, and you put on a dark mask, which is a mask all duct-taped up where it lets absolutely no light in, and you have to navigate your way along this this course and perform tasks. And when you look in the video, they've got things on the bottom. they got things that are floating where they're up just off the bottom. There's uh, hazards that you're going to get caught in, and you're going to have to use your dive knife or cutters to cut your way out. And I thought that this is just valuable training. What better way to do it in the pool where you can get used to what can happen? And the way they explain is a lot of times when you're doing these archaeological projects, you might have less than inches of visibility and you need to be able to keep your wits about you and work your way through the problem.
4: That looks like a really, really good exercise.
1: And I like how the course is laid out. I, I really want to put something together and do that this next year. And maybe that could be a fundraiser for some project. You, know, uh, you maybe you can do it a little bit as a competition, a little bit as a as a warm up training, uh, get some PR out of it. But I, I just liked how they did it.
4: I was looking at the bottom construction. That does not
1: look like a commercial pool. No, it's not a commercial pool. It's just a. It's a deeper than normal pool. Wouldn't you say? It looks like a concrete floor with no pa- no uh,
4: liner or anything.
1: What that's making me think is that might be an old college pool. Or maybe a municipal pool, or who who knows?
4: Yeah, it looks significantly
1: deep, though. I was going to say it, it could be 16, 18 feet. Even doing that, I don't know if you've ever been in the pool and then swam through hula hoops. I, I've done
4: hula hoops, but not in a pool. Yeah, because you can support those with a line and just practice your buoyancy, and how would you go through something? Mm-hmm. Or taking a 50-gallon barrel with the end cut, meaning plastic one, so you can get in the pool? They weigh it down, and then you swim through it? I've seen that I didn't see that here but uh, with a black mask that could be very awkward
1: yeah you're, you're you're going purely by by braille and I think this would be good what I'd like to to do is you maybe you, you have three groups then you get more people than that but it'd be nice even like kind of like when you do the uh, you know the shooting ranges it's nice to sometimes set up the range but it's nice to be able to go through a range that you haven't seen set up
4: yeah well Jim when you have your fire training you guys use black mask when you have to go in. And look for, and do a search for bodies, correct?
2: Yeah, sometimes we do.
4: And that's a really a chore, isn't it? That's not easy.
2: It No, it's not easy.
4: It's a it little scary, too, especially if it's hot.
1: When you, when you say hot, why, how does hot make it scarier?
4: Because then there's a
1: fire there. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Okay, I see. You're talking about the other types of fire training. I'm thinking underwater, and I'm like, if you're going in a water that's boiling, that might not be a good idea.
4: Yeah, but, I mean, even here, though, you know you're you're... For the most part, your hazards are limited, but like when you go in with your SEBA on, like Jim does, you're going in, you got trip hazards, you got couches and tables and chairs, and the body's going to be on the floor, and let's say they hide a mannequin, they throw a smoke bomb in there so you can't see, and now you got to traverse and do a search of the room? That's a heck of a challenge.
1: Yeah, the, 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 I've, I've seen of some of the fire training, never experienced it myself, uh, and that's tough the the heat thing that's why i couldn't be a fireman i just don't do well with uh you know load all that gear on get hot and then go into a fire that's uh, a it's a special type of person who can do that
2: yeah crazy
1: crazy
2: right you got to be crazy to run into a burning building when everybody else is running out
1: that's
4: why jim is special
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: i did the well, log. Of- but in a nice way.
1: Yeah, I, I did the law enforcement thing, so I, I went into crazy things with other people going out. But the, the fire, that's where, you, <laughs> that's where you wave the firemen in at you. Uh, now, there seems the to be... Yeah, see, that, that's why we challenge. always
2: roll donuts in first.
1: Oh, that, that you know, that can work, though.
2: We, we roll a donut in and watch the, the brown uh, retrievers get them.
1: <laughs> it seems to be the season for fundraising. And we had a good discussion going on Facebook on one, and I found another one. So I'll start with the other one first. And it says, you could help fund the build the world's deepest pool. And there's an ambition to build the world's deepest, largest and deepest pool in the UK called the Blue Abyss. And what they're looking to do is fund $150,000 or or, or pounds or $232,000 to cover ongoing negotiations to finalize architecture and construction plans plus the ground survey for the final proposed site and drafting the relevant legal ar- arrangements. Additional U.K. and European grants will also be sought, but these funds will enable the process to get started. So this fundraising that they're looking for isn't to complete it just to get it started. They want to create a facility in Essex, U.K., and build the, large, the world's largest and deepest multi-level indoor research training and development pool. I'll make a premier marine and space research facility in Europe. Open researchers, commercial operators, and most importantly, recreational scuba divers, free divers, technical divers. The pool will be an amazing facility. It will feature state-of-the-art space with hyperbaric chambers, a range of commercial diving, even microgravity facilities. The pool will be 50 meters long, 40 meters wide, have a maximum depth of 50 meters. The managing director of the Blue Abyss project, John Vickers, had this to say. Now that our crowd forcing for the Blue Abyss has gone live, I'm so excited and able to to more publicly share our aspirations to create the world's premier aquatic facility here in the uk and encourage everyone to get involved and benefit of diving and marine and space research and push the boundaries of mankind free diving is going to be a major part of facility and they have Brought Emma Farrell from Go Free Diving on board as a consultant. She had this to say. The free diving consultant for Blue Abyss is part of the crowdfunding appeal. I'm delighted being able to offer a master class of free diving day with dinner and accommodations the night before and two underwater photo- photographs from top underwater photographers. So what they're doing is she's talking about the, the perks of the fundraising. Now there is a pool, I believe it's in Belgium, that is actually still will be deeper than this, but this will be very close to depth and it's, it's Bigger. I like the design, though. They, they show a cutaway, and it just kind of stair steps down, and then it has a deep section.
4: I wonder what it would cost to utilize that facility.
1: It didn't say. So what they're doing, the, the website they're using is called crowdfunder.co.uk. Uh, they have 4,278 pounds raised to the 150,000 pounds target. That's 36 backers, and they're 2% of their goal with 19 days left. The project is using flexible funding, receive all pledges made uh by nine fifty AM on the eighth of July. So and then they go through and they talk about the different perks. Um I'm looking at any of the perks jump out at me. You got the typical t shirts and cards. They said you can sponsor a gallon of water in the pool for five pounds. Um That's interesting to me. Yeah. Nice project. But what some of these fundraisers are show you is how little people! A lot of people talk about wanting it, but how few will actually put any money in? Well, they did have a they they do have some backers at the five hundred pound level. They have quite a few at seventy five, so they they've got a little bit of interest going. Uh, a couple at five hundred, a couple at twelve hundred pounds. Now twelve hundred for twelve hundred pounds, you get uh, a the free dive. Uh, for five hundred, you get a star plaque with your name on it. There is some eight thousand pounds if you want. Let's see what does that give you? Technical diving life membership, so you get to dive for life in the pool. Yeah, that might not be a bad deal. I wonder if, if that
4: means if you're a dive instructor, you can take your students. Probably not.
1: <laughs> I think I would have vetted that out. It says, uh, in a year, oh, okay, here it goes. Technical diving life membership, a strictly limited membership opportunity to become a lifelong technical diving member of Blue Abyss. You book as many times in a year as you choose for as many years as you choose. Oh, so it's, it is truly lifetime. It includes includes certain gas refills to be finalized through discussion. Stunning value for the money. The membership card that goes with this will mark you out as one of the select few. Until the pool's open, we'll also include you in special events you'll be able to receive. Yeah. Estimated delivery time September 2015. That, that seems too soon. They're not going to have the pool done that soon, but uh, a nice project. And then there's another one a little bit closer to home. This one is planning on going in Benton, not, I said Bentonville, Arkansas. That's my Walmart background coming in. Uh, going to be in Arkansas. And this is the Blue Lagoon Project, first in world's first indoor tropical dive spot. What they're trying to do, and, and it's a little bit different. Well, this other one I I kind of relate with because it's more of a technical scuba free diving thing. This one is more of a tropical resort. Uh, listen to music while you swim, snorkel, or scuba dive. It would be a concert venue, a sandy beach, a tropical fish, waterfalls, and underwater speakers. They said, uh, help us build the world's first indoor tropical dive spot. Listen to music concerts above and below the water. There's a fusion of music and water. The American Scuba Club is teamed up with Lucas Lagoons, who is famous for their TV show on Animal Planet and Insane Pools off the deep end. The money will use design build, to maintain an indoor lagoon that will be deep enough to get your scuba certification without going to the ocean. Planned features include... Concert stage, waterfalls, caves, tropical fish, and underwater speaker system. The creator Joel Larson has teamed up with the American Scuba Club and a company called Lucas Lagoons to build the dive spot. Uh, says if you can't make it in person, we'll offer online tours where we'll take you snorkeling through the lagoon, so you'll be able to virtually go through the pool. They said the cool features will be able to play music on an underwater speaker system from anywhere in the world. You can you can watch divers rock out to your music live underwater underwater webcam. See, I, I don't get the the music thing. Yeah, you know, if You had a if you had a concert and I was going to the concert and I could go and watch it from the pool and get a dive in, you know, that's fine. But when you're diving, do you want music playing? That's one of the things I like about diving. There's Have nothing you ever playing been underwater out. and listened to music? I've heard music underwater. I haven't intentionally listened to music underwater. Okay. But I, I don't like to listen to other people's music above water. <laughs> Why do I want it underwater? Oh. It, it, it's the grumpy old man in me coming out.
4: They did mention something in there. I'm curious about. Maybe you guys can answer it. Mm-hmm. We're talking about. Uh, they had three challenges, and one was the depth. Yep. Uh, there, one of the comments said, "Note: a diver with an open water certification is trained to a max depth of 60 feet. The max recreational depth for all scuba divers is 130 feet with advanced training." Now, I've never heard of an open water certification is trained to a max depth of 60 feet.
1: The way it's, I've heard it explained. Is recreational limit is 120 feet.
4: 130.
1: Is it 130? Yeah. 130. In in my mind, it's 130, but I I want to say I keep hearing 120. But what they train to in the regular certification is 60 feet is deep. And if you go with, well, I think, with advanced open water and you do the deep dive, you have to dive down to 60 feet, but that's all it is to. And Patty's position is that really to go down deeper than that it should be advanced training anyway but they don't say that so you're still able to go down to that depth it's just that that's not really what the certification is and we've all seen people in conditions where they shouldn't be going down that deep
4: the only reason i was curious back in the day when and that was uh, talking about patty when you did your open water you went to 60 feet but you had to do a free ascent from 60 feet that was actually what we did and so I relate to the 60 foot part because that's where we did our 60 foot free ascent.
1: Yeah. I uh, don't I mean, do that anymore. No, I think my class is one of the last who did the free ascents. And that was at that time, it was either 30 or 40 feet. It wasn't the full 60.
4: And was it done with the John line? No. Not a free ascent?
1: And that was a free ascent. We were on a platform and you had to go up and, and do it. And that was a requirement. And that was. If you're going to get washed out, it seemed to be that's where many people would have, would be in that free ascent. And that was in the, the regular open water, not the advanced.
4: Right. And they don't do that anymore.
1: No, I've, I've heard from others and we got Dave in the chat room who's an instructor. So maybe he'll spout out and let us know. But I don't think the free ascent is, is even offered or done anymore. So that's something that's changed in the last five years if it isn't. Um, yeah. I, I really think that you need to have a, a I think you should have something really deep like I like they the one in the U, excuse me the UK is trying to do they want to do it in, in Arkansas and they're saying that it would be a draw but I think one of the problems with one of these pools is I'm not driving to Arkansas for the pool and I think I'm exactly the person they're counting on driving to Arkansas for the pool where the pool makes sense is when I can't go and dive in a real spot if I can't get out in the Lake Michigan or do something else or I want to do some training or practice or we're in the off season that's in the pool makes sense
4: well, don't you compare that with going to Bonterre? How often do we talk about it, but yet you don't go?
1: I've, I've never been there, no. And, and because and, the distance. It's the distance. It's also the, it, it's the cost. I mean, we're spoiled here. Uh, other than the, a boat being a thing you pour money into the water with, if you happen to beg and borrow your way onto somebody else's boat, you get to amazing places, and we don't spend nearly what you do. And going into a spot like this. So you, there's going to be an entry fee to get into the spot, I'm assuming. And they always, the entry fees are always tw- two to three times what I'm willing to pay. Like I, I, I've, well, how much is it to get to Great America now?
4: I really don't have a clue anymore. Uh,
1: I, I can remember, and it shows my age, going in and saying, oh my gosh, 22 bucks is a lot. And I want to say Great America is getting to be close to what Disney used to be. Like I want to say, you're in a sixty to eighty dollar range now, and I'm speaking out of school. In fact, we can find this up with the the great big internet of everything, and that's what some of these business models what they they fail to calculate. So we've got uh, so Six Flags Great America, Chicago, Illinois, discount online tickets are starting at forty seven ninety nine. You know, probably with inflation, that's like my twenty dollars twenty some years ago. But I expect that's what they're going to want for one of these places. Also, the, the spokesperson for this, if you look at these crowdfunding, this is done through a Kickstarter. They got a video. I would expect Joe Larson, who's, who's the name, person whose name's on it, to give a little discussion to talk about it. And instead, they've got two spokesmodels with very annoying voices going and pitching it. And to me, it loses all credibility when they do that. I'd like to, I'd like to see something like this close to us, but the, I've, I don't know how you make it economically viable. That's got to be the challenge. What do you think, Jim?
2: I'd love to see one close to us, but as you said, I don't know that it would fly. Now, at a casino and a uh, yeah. mega hotel to it, maybe. Yeah. You know, I could see somebody doing it in Vegas, but, you know, those places have all kinds of venues already, so.
1: So it, be- so it becomes a-, a gimmick. You'd have to have the right kind of yeah. gimmick. So what we have to do is we have to co-op ourselves. I think ourselves.
2: could support it.
1: Well, I, I, th- I consider ourselves Chicagoists. If you're in Chicago, you would, you'd be willing to travel because we're not even, we're two and a half hours from Chicago. You can reasonably be in, in St. Joe.
4: How many charter dives have you done in Chicago or on that side of the lake?
1: Charter dives? None. So
4: why would you go? You know
1: what I'm saying? Well, for me, if I, if I imagine myself living in Chicago and I don't have a friend with a boat, maybe I, my diving is, I do two dive charters a year. So that's four dives. Maybe I do a trip to Florida. And getting a couple cattle boats down there. And then maybe I, my shore dive experiences, I drive to Hague Quarry and maybe I do that four times a year. This would just become one of those things I would do once or twice, maybe in the early season before everything else opens up. But
2: middle of the winter, it would be great.
1: Middle of the winter would be great. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. And then I think you'd have to have some sort of draw. Something that made it unique enough, Yeah, you know, because, because you can get a lot of what you need done in a, in a pool with a deep end. You know, if you, if they could do diving in the pool, you can do a lot of your gear checks in there. But if it had something unique, uh, yeah, something to think about. I, I like the idea. So here are two Kickstarter projects. We'll have links up on the website. Maybe we'll try and get, uh, might be a good interview topic is, see if we can get a hold of this Joel and he explained to us what his thinking was. I want to know what the hell is he thinking about the video? <laughs> Have you seen the video, Mac? No. Oh, uh, you, you'll have to watch it and get back to us because it, it's jaw-dropping. You're like, really? That's what you decided to do? And And you'll really? see it, You'll see the attraction, heavy on the attraction. So that does it for Scuba in the News. God, how long have we been babbling on here? We are running towards the end of time, uh, so we'll have to speed it up before I have to do a uh, two-part episode. So, did anybody get any diving in this last week?
2: I got some shallow stuff in at the local lakes.
1: You So, you? I, I heard you had a new diver with you?
2: Yes. So, Took a I... young diver out for, you know, just to get him a little bit of experience. He got certified two years ago when he was 14, did one dive last year in Florida. And so, his dad brought him over and wanted to give him a chance to get wet again. So, we went out and chased some fish around the local lake and... Picked up a lot of trash off the bottom and hopefully he'll call and say he wants to go again sometime. Excellent. So good. And then with any luck, I hope to get the get wet out this Sunday and hit the Havana.
1: Now that sounds really good. I've My wife just asked me a few hours ago if I was going to be diving this week and I said if we can. <laughs> so I am pre-clear. Right. Got
2: a, I got a spot for you on the boat. And we just have
1: to have some weather to go with that spot. Yep. It, it has been yep. raining this week. Uh. We've had we, we haven't had yeah. gotten hit bad in Michigan. We've just had rain. Uh, there was was it Monday. It downpoured for a little bit. Uh, Mac, have you seen any of the river spots? Are they ripping?
4: Um. Yeah, and your visibility is about six inches, maybe.
1: <laughs> so I I say when I see that I'm I'm planning on not getting in the river until September. At this point,
4: I did do a little post on Facebook of today's activity. What What was today? Visiting a PBR, it's the old patrol boat. And from that's Vietnam.
2: not a blue ribbon. That, too, that was that's not okay. a Paps blue so, ribbon. He was that
4: stands for patrol boat river. The Mark II. It's the kind they used in the uh, Brownwater Navy and Nam. Okay. So I posted a nice picture head-on shot at it, and and those little devices looking straight at you, are twin fifties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, mm. so, so there's a couple of people out there who will know what I'm talking about, and uh, we have a couple in our our club actually who have uh, been on that in unfriendly waters. Mr. Curtis, for example, he was quite familiar with this boat and this type.
1: So he was on one like it, but not this particular one.
4: Right, not this There's only six surviving, and this is one of the
1: six. So is it kind of like a horse? They keep getting shot out from under you, or they were just scrapped?
4: I'm really not sure, because they, they came back. They they had uh, what they call swift boat earlier, but the, uh, the PBRs started out in 1969, and they only made like, I think, 450 of them or something like this.
2: To get out for a ride on it this afternoon.
4: No, I did not go for a ride. Uh, they were quite busy, and I, and I let other people take my spot.
1: Now, is this now, the fact,
4: I, I uh, met some guys on it that I knew when they were coming back in. You know, Mark Perrin, right? Takes pictures. Yeah, he's taking mm-hmm. for yep. plane. Uh, He was riding in the nose turret. Uh, another friend of mine from from well, Vietnamia serves uh, as a far artillery area down there in the Delta, and um, he was on the back there, mounting by the old fifty in the back or the M sixty in the back. So it's quite interesting the people you meet on on the boat, <laughs> and it was only going to be here for one more day. Uh, well, at least we forget, you know, is this weekend at the airport? Starts well, tomorrow?
1: What, that's what I was wondering when you when you talked about. It, I was going to say, are we getting that time of the year? And it, with with the the season just seems to be so late. Uh, we've been in the lake, Michigan, eight eight times by the time that least we forget happens, and it is already here now.
4: Yeah, we haven't been on a wreck yet.
1: No, no. Yeah, oh, I know is, it's terrible. Oh, this is this is crazy. June doesn't. Yeah, doesn't I know. Doesn't middle sound middle of June and yeah, it uh, it's
2: past the middle of June. I, I haven't even hit you know.
1: I, I think I need to change yeah, my got, icon to a, a diver in a straight jacket because that's what it feels like.
2: Well, I hope to make up for it. Yeah,
1: we'll, we'll, now that
2: I've got the boat running, hopefully running better.
1: Excellent. So we'll, we'll if that if at all possible, we'll get out to get some diving in, and we also launched. We we'll relaunch the scuba obsessed website it had not been structurally updated since we went live and that was well over five years ago we're in our fifth season now and it just needed things have changed since then and i've been doing it for all my customers i had not been able to do it for myself cobbler's kids had no shoes so i finally broke down and did it a uh, new website it's mobile friendly so you can view it on your phone you can view it on a tablet a web browser i've got all the content structurally moved over There's a lot of new areas that aren't visible. There's some stuff that doesn't, that isn't quite there, but you'll have a hard time following it, finding the stuff that's uh, not activated yet. So we'll, we'll be turning it on. We'll be adding some new features. We'll be adding a premium section, but that won't be right away. We'll, we'll fill it out with plenty of good freely available content. And then there'll be some stuff where. We're going to spend some time and effort on populating, and that will have to be for supporters and backers of the show to get into those areas. The podcast will remain free. A lot of the stuff will remain free. There will just be some, some things we're going to spend some money to be able to do, and we'll have to have a way of recuperating it. So that will be the premium area. Um I'm going to, in the next week, we'll have the ability for you to sign up for newsletters. You'll be able to get some early peeks into information. And we'll also have show notes before the shows you'll be able to sign up for. So you'll want to watch out for that as it happens. Uh, uh, also, remember, you can listen Sounds to it. good.
2: It looks good, too.
1: You, you like it? You guys think it, it works?
4: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got I got a new picture for me instead of the one you have. I have okay. one for Jim if he wants to update his picture.
1: Yeah, because these these photos I, I'm looking, and that's something I also want to prove. Uh, yeah, I, I've never pretended to be a photographer, but I, I was. I know that every photo I put up met my criteria, and my criteria for good photo now is much more stringent when I started. So some of these, uh, you know, they're taken with an iPhone, and the original iPhone, well good wasn't great and the cameras we've got now in phones are so much better and the, the so we're just the, the standards are increasing and we do need to freshen stuff up plus if you guys want different bios uh you yeah, know i think i might have had you, your age is wrong or something so you just have to look through and we'll update it uh also trying to put a list together of guests there's some photos missing uh for the older posts so if you come across one and you notice it and you if it's something you really want to see the photo let me know but it was a matter of I gotten the structure in. It would be another two weeks for me to add all those photos in, so I decided to get the site up sooner than later. Well, it looks good. Well, thank you. And it's going to be a lot more informational. It's going to read like a magazine. So we'll try and I'm going to try and get stuff up to where it might be daily, but at least every other day we'll have some new content. And Does that I mean want it's
2: going to have a staple in the middle.
1: Staple, yes. We'll put like a little stitch it right down the middle.
2: A little little staple right down the middle.
1: Or yeah. we get perfect binding. July
2: that. was. Till yeah. I was fourteen years old, I always thought girls had staples in their belly button.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, let's see. You guys got anything to plug before we we go on? Uh not at this point. Okay, because I think we're to that. Not time at this moment, where we have to do the bad scuba joke. And I've got so many this week. I, I've I've had some from well Mac and from Jim and from Rod and others. So let's see. I Which think,
2: one did you pick?
1: I don't know. And some of them are so bad. The really bad one we're going to have to hold off on.
2: Yeah, that probably came from Rod. Rod's really good with really bad jokes.
1: Uh, I, and, I, and you're you're correct there. In fact, some of them I, I'll, I'll look at. It might take me two weeks to decide I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. So let's go ahead and end this. A diver walks into a local dive shop and asks a clerk if he can buy just one fin to replace the one he lost. The clerk says he'll have to ask the manager and heads to the back room, it sees a manager and says, can you believe there's some cheap SOB out there who wants to buy just one fin? Just as the words come out of his mouth, he turns sees the customer had followed him into the back room and says, and fortunately for us, this customer wants to buy the other one. Is that okay if I split the pair and sell them separately? The manager says yes, and the clerk returns to the store and handles the sale. A couple of minutes later, the manager walks the sale and says, you're lucky back there. It's a good thing you can think on your feet. Where are you from? The clerk answers, the U.P., I had to get out of there because the place is nothing but loose women with buck teeth and hockey players with no teeth. The manager raises his eyebrow and says, well, my wife was from the U.P., Clerk quickly replies. Really? You would never know she wears dentures. What team did she play for? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think that qualifies as a bad school joke.
1: Yeah, that one did. So uh, and then once again we want to chank, uh, thank, chank. thank uh thank thank matea and robert curson for the interview and until next week go out there and get wet
2: and stay safe and please send us some bad scuba jokes Recording has been completed. Yay. Nice job. Two hours.
1: Yeah. I got to try and get this down to an hour and a half.